If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You don't know yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, and do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, did you just talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I. Mystery, 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 People always laugh when I tell them that. <laughs> They're like, wait, what's it called now? It is a weird name. Sometimes people are like, oh, what's what are, what's it called? And I'm like, um, uh, a mystery murder thingy. Uh, you know, if you say it enough times, though, it starts to sound normal like any other like, well, it was, collection it was of phonemes. Well, it was a very conversational, so. like... We were, like, right. deep in conversation. I was like, we're going to talk about mystery murdery thingies. And I was like, oh... What about? Uh, well, that could be a maybe. Okay, sure. Why not? Um, It'll catch. And that's It'll the, catch. That's the story of how we came up with our name that we've told like MMT. five five times so far. Team mystery. <laughs> team mystery, and you can and refer to it as MMT or team mystery. So. Yes. Um, High five every time we say it. Right, right. Yep. And we do, of course, talk about mysteries and murderies and thingies. And this week I'm doing another history mystery. I'm doing a. Mm, is it murdery? I don't know what you're doing mist, this week. It is. It it could be murdery. Okay, possible murdery. We don't know. Cool. Because it's a mystery. <laughs> I love a, I love a good mystery. 
Okay. Because that's what the podcast we're doing. Okay, so okay. if you are really into anthropology, <laughs> Mario's got this for you. We do all kinds of mysteries here. So I'm doing I'm a little a little anthropology mystery, history mystery. Is, it's also weird. Yes, yeah, so the, I'm doing uh, this week, I'm doing pre-Columbian transit, transatlantic contact. It's kind of a mouthful. Pre-Columbian transatlantic transatlantic contact. Okay, I'll say it correctly at least once, right? Okay, so essentially this is the question, the mystery of whether, you know, there was contact because okay, so we, we all know that Columbus, you know, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, right? Employed by the Spanish crown, you know, looking for gold, looking for the fabled western passage that to the to the east to China and India and to the riches thereunto, which of course they had heard previously from people like Marco Polo, right, in the 13th century, where it's like, hey, there's all of this like crazy shit in this place called China. <clears throat> China. Right, where the China people live. Oh, and God. they've got all this cool shit, like, you know, the silk. And we have no idea how the fuck they make this, right? But or we like want it. bombs Money. or like, you know, all this stuff. It's crazy. Gunpowder. Fi- fireworks. Fireworks. We want some fireworks. So what Columbus, though, found, of course, was not any of that and was not China and it was not India. It was some islands in what we now refer to as the Bahamas. Um, But what about contact before that? What about, like, 1491 previous? Right. You know? Was there contact between the so-called old and new worlds before Columbus? That's my history mystery for this week. So it's just like, it's one of those things where like, well, what about them? Well, how did they get there? Well, how did they get there? Well, how did they get there? And we'll see that there are some things that don't quite add up that point to maybe there's a reason why it's a mystery. I'll say that. Okay. So, okay. Okay. Just a little bit of background before we kind of dig in. So first of all, we all know, you know, through archaeological DNA evidence, anthropology, that possibly more than one large-scale migration into North and South America started about sixteen to 17,000 years ago. But I, I, When people say that, I can't even fathom it. So. It's, a, it's a little hard to conceive I just of. Kind of a, I just kind of ignore it. But, I mean, to give you some sense, you know, human beings have been around, right, Homo sapiens have been around for, what, about 150,000 years, I believe, 200,000 years, somewhere in that nature. So, you know, this is long after the Homo sapiens, you know, were a thing. And they'd gone, like, everywhere else, basically. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Um, But the timeline is, it's highly debated. And it's not at all clear. There are new discoveries all the time um, that are pretty, usually pushing the timeline back. So now there are people that think it may have started actually 40,000 years ago. And there were multiple migrations into, you know, North and South America. So, you know, in all that time, you know, in prehistory, before 1492, was there any transatlantic contact? Now, we do know that the answer is yes, because of things that that actually were discovered pretty recently in the past, like, 10 to 15 years. We do know that there was Nordic uh, contact between Nordic peoples... um, and indigenous peoples in what is now known as Greenland and Newfoundland, you know, parts of northern so Canada, who would places be the like indig- that. Considered the indigenous people, the ones who were 
in Greenland? Of course, yeah, the, the, the people who were indigenous to that area, okay. as opposed to the Nordic people who, you know, may have emigrated in the past few hundred years from a different place, and their ancestors came from a different place, and then there would have been indigenous people from, you know, Sweden or something, right? Um, so, you know, um, this kind of Norse-North American contact was actually thought to be kind of, like, mythical. So just to let you know, like, this was a mystery at one point, right? And then it became oh. not a mystery in, res- in respecting the, the Nordic people's contact That's in the north. That's what I hope happens with Vinland. Atlantis. If with Atlantis, yeah, very well could. I hope it happened, happened with Troy. I mean, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely could. Um, so the, this um, uh, evidence for the uh, contact, the Nordic contact, it came up starting in 1960. But there have been more discoveries subsequent to that as well. So... Okay, was there other contact, though, from places like Africa, you know, Oceania, uh, Polynesia, those kind of places? So there um, is some general scientific evidence that does point to some pre-Columbian East-West contact. So just to, you know, kind of talk about how this is a kind of more legitimate than you might think. So It sounds it kind, kind of, of like a fringe kind of theory, right? A lot of people think of it as pseudoscience. But really? there is, you know, some scientific basis for this as well. So some of the best evidence of that is certain types of plants, nearly 100 species. Oh, wow. Um, and this comes from this, like, long report that I read. The, oh! Um, 11... <laughs> Sorry. I won't do that again. So uh, anyway, so we're not editing this. So the, um, yeah, I read like the abstract of the scientific paper that um, was kind of a review of of a lot of these um, plants and animals essentially that were present before Columbus, before 1492 in both the East and the West. And the so... question is, you know, how did they get there? What, do you want to ask No, I know, I'm like thinking, I, I'm, okay. pro- I'm processing. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, 21 species of micropredators and six species of other fauna, you know, animals, organisms, were also uh, present, and nearly 100 species of plants. Um, what? Some of those... Wait, could, have, could people have... I guess that's the question. Could people have, like, physically brought their, like, favorite types of plants over and, like, yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Oh, goodness. Remember how we, we talked about this a little while yes, ago? Yes, we did. Okay, anyway. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so um, there were also some shared species of parasites, um, presumably carried by human hosts, that are also present. Oh, gross. Okay. So, yeah, and, and when I say, like, micropredators and fauna, some of these are, like, uh, fungi and um, viruses and bacteria, things of that nature. Um, so there are some different hypotheses as to how this could have happened, right, other than human-to-human, you know, transatlantic contact. Um, There are these things called natural transfer mechanisms. For example, a log floating across the ocean, right? There's a, you know, a a big... um, Physically, literally? And we know that this does happen and has happened many, many hundreds and thousands of times uh, over the course of history because there are organisms that we essentially no got to where they are through these means. The question is, could this have happened, you know, all the way across, you know, the ocean? I never thought it could be that simple. (laughs) Yeah, no, it can. I mean, you know, it's like shit moves around and the oceans have currents and, you know, it it doesn't take as long as you might think. 
uh, on the order of, you know, maybe dozens to hundreds of years, which is not that long. Um, so anyway, and of course, there was the early human migration over the Bering Strait that we talked about earlier. But what they proposed in this paper um, was, or, or I don't know whether this is true, but they said it. <laughs> you know, I'm not a, I'm a fucking scientist, again, as I always say, um, that, you know, we don't know, um, or they, they think that, that it couldn't have been accounted for by these natural transfer mechanisms, that these, um, essentially, these plants and organisms that shouldn't have been in both the East and the West, right across the ocean, were there. And natural transfer mechanisms couldn't totally account for that. So there had to be something else. So to some researchers, this suggests a, quote, number of transoceanic voyages in both directions across both major oceans completed between the 7th millennium BCE and the European Age of Discovery. Which, wait, which was when? The European Age of Discovery is, you know, um, the, let's say, the... the 12th, 13th centuries through, you know, oh, the, the slave okay. trade and, and okay. you know, all of that sort of stuff. The, the triangle, you know, between Africa and Europe and America and all that kind of thing. So those researchers, um, which, which again does not represent probably the majority of researchers in this area, but still, you know, researchers also think that a, um, that a growing understanding of the capabilities of ancient mariners, you know, ships... And those sh the shipbuilders bolsters the case for this kind of pre-Columbian contact. In other words, we found out that ancient ships were much more um, seaworthy than we might have previously thought. Right. And therefore we might need, you know, it's right. sort of similar to the Antikythera mechanism, where new evidence means we might need to sort of rethink some of our assumptions about these ancient uh, How cultures. How technologically advanced they were. Exactly. Um, there's also some DNA evidence that hints at Native Americans sailing to Rapa Nui. Again, you know, referencing a previous episode, Rapa Nui, so-called Easter Island. Yeah, that was great. <clears throat> or vice versa, that the Rapa Nuians may, or whatever they're called, may have actually gone to North America and visited them and then come back. Um, somewhere around 1300 to 1500. So, you know, right around that, you know, age of discovery. But what about Africa? Was there contact between Africa and North America, South America in these pre-Columbian times? Right, because people genu generally think of Africa as bringing in, is people got there because of the slave trade. Exactly. And, um, of course, you know, that that is, we know, you know, it became a whole massive industry of moving people between those, you know. And, and then domestically within Africa to, to facilitate the slave trade and in many other places as, as well, of course. Um, but what about before? So some historians and explorers have suggested striking similarities between certain African and South American religious symbols, like the winged serpent and sun disc. And also um, etymologists have... Um, pointed out some very similar words between certain languages present in South America and also in Africa. Apparently words including Kore and Godwal. Right? <laughs> right. I read that on Wikipedia. 
Thank you, Wikipedia. So also there is some disputed textual evidence that suggests a fleet from the Mali Empire, which was one of one of the great empires of ancient Africa, um, visited the New World in around 1311. So this is like um, an estimate. Uh, yeah, all, all of these are are fairly hypothetical. You know, I mean, the, the, this is not solid evidence. It's circumstantial, right. Kind of evidence, um, but you know, hey, it's evidence. Take it as you will. Um, embrace the mystery. Yes. And indeed, forsooth, part of Columbus's intent in making his famous trip um, was apparently to test a route that supposedly had sailed west from Guinea in Africa, Western Africa, to Hispaniola. So, so he th- was this was kind of someone else. Yes, there, there was this kind of like um, story, or I guess people believed it at the time. Apparently, that there had been this kind of transatlantic contact between Africa and uh, the New World, uh, so-called. Um, and you know, they I guess part of why they made the trip and the Spanish probably thought it was a good investment was because like, hey, oh, these other people have done it, so we should go try it out as well. And um, there is some evidence of this contact in the oral tradition of the indigenous people in the Caribbean who tell of a voyage that, quote, sailed to the west with merchandise from the south and the southeast, and that on this voyage, quote, had come black people whose spears were made of a metal called guainan. Nice. Close quote. Right, which is, I believe, a, um, a form of lead alloy. Um, that I, I I guess is present in Africa, but not in the Caribbean, naturally. Although I'm not totally sure, but that seemed to be the implication. And so, you know, how could it have gotten there other than this kind of contact? So that voyage that supposedly set out from Guinea was led by the Malian ruler Abu Bakr II. Um, and according to an Egyptian scholar named Alumari, quoting a different Malian ruler, um, I believe the one who came like right uh, before or after Abu Bakr II, uh, named Mansa Musa, um, who lived from about 1280 to 1337. So this is a quote, um, this is a quote from Mansa Musa being quoted by Alumari. The ruler who preceded me did not believe that it was impossible to reach the extremity of the ocean that encircles the earth, meaning the Atlantic, and wanted to reach that end and obstinately persisted in the design so he equipped 200 boats full of men, like many others, full of gold, water, yeah. and victuals, sufficient enough for several years. What? He ordered the chief, Admiral, not to return until they had reached the extremity of the ocean or if they had exhausted the provisions and the water. They set out, their absence extending over a long period, and at last, only one boat returned. On our questioning... The captain said, Prince, we have navigated for a long time until we saw in the midst of, of the ocean as, a, as if a big river was flowing violently. My boat was the last one. Others were ahead of me. As soon as any of them reached this place, it drowned in the whirlpool and never came out. I sailed backwards to escape the current. But the sultan would not believe him. He ordered 2,000 boats what? to be equipped for him and his men and 1,000 more for water and victuals. Then he conferred on me the regency during his absence 
and departed with his men on the ocean trip, never to return, nor to give a sign of life. Close quote. So I, th- I thought that was a pretty cool little story, so I, I wanted to read the whole thing. Is it true? Uh, I have no idea whether <laughs> any of that is true. I mean, there, uh, but... There, there like was a historical. There was a historical. You know, Abu Bakr the second. There was a historical Mansa Musa. These people were certainly real. Mm-hmm. Alumari was a real person who presumably who wrote these things. So, I mean, was there? I I think that there must have been some basis in fact for this. You know that uh, that's satisfying. Yeah, the people living in the Malian Empire, just like people living in Europe and other places, realized that there was land on the other side of the water. You know, they, they had the kind of, like, forethought and, and understanding of the circularity, the spherical right, nature of the earth right. to know that, like, there must be on right. the other side of this more land. Like he said, the last ruler didn't. He didn't believe that, right? The, no, he did believe that. He obstinately believed it, and oh. therefore he wanted to make this trip across the ocean because he knew that there would be land on the other side. But the leader before him was like... Um, well, that was the guy who, who made the trip and who oh, came okay, back okay, after... Okay. All his friends got drowned in the whirlpool. I mean, if you saw a bunch of your friends, like uh, 99 other ships get drowned in a whirlpool, you'd be pretty freaked out and be like, don't go. You know, like, it doesn't matter. It's not that important. But you're Abu Bakr the second. You're like, I don't know. That whole thing about the whirlpool, I don't think it really happens. I'm going to go anyway. So I have lots of money, you see. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I can get 3,000 ships. So anyway, um, <laughs> we'll just make a human chain across the ocean. Yes! <laughs> so there swimming lessons for all. Right. Um, there is also some circumstantial evidence of Roman contact with the so-called New World. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. The Romans did many things. They did. Many of them weren't that great. Um, at a site Correct. called the Bay of Jars wow. in Brazil. Many, the Bay of Jars. The Bay of Jars, not the Bay of Pigs, the Bay Ooh. of Jars. In Brazil, well, many so clay jars uh, resembling Roman amphorae have been found over the last 150 years. Some propose that indigenous peoples in Brazil learned the style from a Roman shipwreck that is supposed to have drifted over the Atlantic. No one's ever found a Roman shipwreck, but... It's presumed that one occurred, and therefore they found these amphorae and started copying them. That's that's the idea. Oh. That's the hypothesis. So it wasn't direct direct contact. It was that that that's the idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, other so interesting. Other people think though that there may have been. I wouldn't uh, even contact. thought of a scenario. I didn't even think that something like that could happen. Right. Oh, that like a shipwreck could like float all the way across the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty crazy. And, and that like people saw it and were like. This is, this is kind of cool. Let <laughs> let's do this. Like, but that is a very human thing to do, right? It's like, yeah. You know, it's it's like that thing where invading um, armies kind of like set the um, the like uh, fashion for for where they invaded. Yeah. There's like that thing in yeah, like history and yeah. stuff. So anyway, um, okay. There's also this thing called the Tecoxic Calixtuaca head. Oh. I did practice that. Thank you very much. Good job. Yeah. Um, it is a, I'm not going to say it again because uh, that went pretty well. So it is a small terracotta head that was probably originally part of a larger figurine. And it was found in 1933 in the Toluca Valley near Mexico City. Some most prominently archaeologist Romeo Hritzov 
suggest the figurine is Roman, mainly because it resembles a Roman or Greek man who's kind of a bearded figure. From, and he believes it's from the 2nd to 3rd centuries uh, CE. And there's also um, this kind of testing called thermoluminescent testing that's been done on it that has confirmed that it was from the 9th century BCE oh, to wow. the 13th century CE. So we do know that it is like ancient, ancient. Wow. So um, moving uh, north here a little bit, we'll examine the legend of St. Brendan. What? So St. Brendan... Tell me. I, uh, tell me about it. <laughs> so St. Brendan was this Irish monk. My who, guy. Right. I love me a good Irish monk <laughs> who supposedly crossed the Atlantic. They've always got good beer on them, those Irish monks. That's terrible. So, right. Um, no, because, you know, monks make beer. Not because he's Irish. Oh, obviously. they do? Yeah. I actually didn't know that. I genuinely didn't know that. That's why I didn't understand your joke at all. Oh, no, that's okay. That I, right I kind of said it because he was Irish too. But, <laughs> yeah, that's insensitive to Irish people. But monks do make beer. Very, very good beer. Chimay. Chimay's an Irish. Anyway, so uh, supposedly this Irish monk named St. Brendan crossed the Atlantic in the 6th century CE. And, um, you know, with 16 of his um, monkish buds, uh, we are merry monkish men sailing on the sea. With his six, no, no, I just made that up. Um, to seek the promised land, the fabled promised land of the, of the Bible. You've read it, right? The Bible? Yeah. No. <laughs> Me neither. Um, so while this story is thought to be a myth um, by many historians, um, there's this uh, guy named Tim Severin, who's a, a kind of explorer and historian, who did essentially recreate this voyage in a replica of this ancient type of uh, ship that he probably would have used called a Kurok. And uh, Tim Severin showed that it is actually possible. And it's a fairly small ship, but he sailed it from Ireland to America. So we, we know that it, it actually could, ha could have happened. Um, okay, another British legend of this kind of pre-Columbian transatlantic contact was that of, thank you, was that of Welsh Prince Maddock. Uh, Prince Maddock is said to have visited the Americas in 1170, and the British pointed to this, actually, um, even though it's not totally proven that it actually probably didn't happen. Um, you don't when, think it happened? Uh, uh, this, this one seems kind of flimsy. Um, but they did point to this as a supposed um, provenance to lay claim to land in the New World, so-called, uh, during the colonial period. What does provenance mean? Oh, provenance means, like, uh, proof. You know, like, um, uh, you know, your backstory, essentially, right? So it's like, hey, you know, you Dutch people. Hey, you French people. You know, you, you oh, you were here in, you know, whatever, 1510? Tell me about oh, your great. travels. Well, we were here in 1170 with, you know, Prince Maddox, so Fuck like you. we're the ones who get to oppress the Native Americans first. <laughs> oh God, you bastards! Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of that did it's happen. It's like it just reminds you of the space race. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So, further evidence for this pre-Columbian British contact is supposed um, writing that's got this ancient type of uh, Celt. Uh, I think it's Celtic Irish writing called uh, Ogham. Ooh. Yeah. 
and it's actually pretty cool if you look it up. Um, and there are a lot of these, you know, sites um, in Ireland, you know, where, you know, that, that's in the stone and everything. So it'll persist forever, basically. And there are some disputed sites that are also in um, America, um, including ones in Virginia. But, but yeah, I mean, I guess we don't really know, but it's, it could be evidence. So there's also um, some evidence that, uh, quote, the great Chinese naval explorer Zheng He may have reached the eastern coast of North America over 60 years before Columbus reached the West. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So. That's really far. And, and I think it's the opposite, isn't it? The West Coast as opposed to the East Coast, because Columbus reached the East Coast. Anyway, I copied that from a source, so <laughs> anyway. It seems like it would be West Coast. I think you're right. Yeah, I think those are reversed. So, um, so during the Ming Dynasty, which was 1405 <coughs> to 1433, uh, Zhang, Zheng He, led explorations from the South China Sea to India um, to the east coast of Africa. So he kind of like explored, you know, that whole kind of area um, through the, the eastern coast of Africa. His ships were quite large compared with European crafts of the same time. And Chinese historical records also speak of a land called Fusang to the far east, i.e. the very direction of the west coast of North America. Hmm. So perhaps that's to what they were referring, perhaps. <laughs> um, and no discussion um, of pre-Columbian transatlantic contacts would be complete without mentioning, of course, the Mormons. Thank you very much. Oh. A.K.A. the Church oh, of Jesus right. Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. You the know American these people. Moses. They live in the mountains of Utah. They work out incessantly. They're very nice people, and they happen to believe in a lot of kind of out there stuff. But hey, so do a lot of other people. Um, That's true. Right. That's so fair. Right. I, I feel like sometimes the Mormons, I mean, not the, the Mormon religion's not perfect. No religion's perfect. I'm, I would be the last person to claim that. But they do a lot of good stuff. I mean, come on. Among Christians, they, they seem like they're pretty good. I don't know. I don't know why I'm sticking up for the Mormons. But anyway. Um, oh, you'd uh, be surprised. And obviously, there are a lot of bad people in, in every organization, a lot of bad things. I'm sure they've done a lot of fucked up shit over the years. But I'm just saying. Anyway, this is probably a part I would edit out. <laughs> <laughs> so, as any good musical nerd would know, yep. the Book of Mormon, the, the actual Book of Mormon, not the musical, but the Book of Mormon, um, the purportedly divinely inspired text published by Joseph Smith. The American Moses. In 1830. <laughs> Tells us that ancient Semitic peoples <laughs> laid their progeny in the New World, so-called New World. So while Smith's claims have not been supported by subsequent research, some LDS scholars hold that certain ancient South American or Mesoamerican cultures like the Olmec and the Maya were actually descendants of Semitic peoples, right? Like the Jaredites and the Lamanites. Who? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Not at all. Right? All those Semitic peoples. So by the same token, though, archaeology 
hasn't ruled out that this is possible. So I say embrace the mystery of I, the pre-Columbian the, transatlantic contacts. The people sounded like rocks or elements. <laughs> the, what, are the, what are they? The, the Jaredites? Yeah. Are you saying that the, the Jaredites don't sound like real people? Because I find that offensive. What stone is on your ring? Oh, it's Jaredite. That does. It does kind of sound like that. You're right. So the uh, my Natural. source, right? Uh, got it from Jared's. So <laughs> not a not a sponsor. So I um, my sources were uh, Wikipedia, of course. Yep. Uh, several many pages, but all uh, of course the pre-Columbian transoceanic contact theories page. Um, also that um, very very long. Article, uh, article, whatever that I did not read all of, um, was called scientific. Evi- uh, yeah, I read the abstract. Um, scientific evidence for pre-Columbian transoceanic voyages. Oh. By John Sorensen and Carl Johansson for Sinoplatonic papers uh, from two thousand and four. It's a very scientific paper. Um, and then also Robert P at Owlcation.com. That was not a scientific paper. <laughs> and also Andrew Lawler at Science. Well, you had a lot of sources. Well, a few. Some of them had long names. Um, all right, so I've got a good in. Good. I have a good story for y'all. Um, basically, I'm going to tell the story of... Uh, this is a story all about... Sorry, Why'd you stop? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> About um, the Truth Fellowship and some missing members. The Truth Fellowship? Yes. I've never heard of that. It's a very, very small cult. So let's start with the book. Um, oh, I'm also going to talk about my main source first because it was a case file. It was a podcast episode of Case File, episode 83. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the book. Servers of the Divine Plan, published in 1999 by an anonymous author. It was like a spiritual guide to awaken its readers. Okay, so it, it prof- here's the basics. It prophesied that... Sorry, it prophesied that the earth was coming <laughs> to an end of a 75,000-year cycle and that Judgment Day was on the way. So... Repent! Repent! Exactly. For Judgment Day is at hand! After that... Well, that was terrible. What, what even was that? Mm, I was quoting something, but I can't remember. <laughs> I think it's like some Monty Python sketch or something. I don't know. Oh, my God. Um... So after this new judgment day, there would be like a new world and only those who have mastered the physical plane will be promoted to a higher form of consciousness. We would, we would make it, right? We'd be in. Oh, yeah. So this is, what, this is the blurb. This is like the little summary of the book. It says, a practical and instructive guide for individuals who are awakening all over the world. Earth is now a focal point of interest for beings from other planets, galaxies, and dimensions. Members of various interstellar confederations have moved closer to Earth to assist with the planetary transformation. Growing numbers of seekers are realizing they have incarnated at this critical time to play an active role in the great transition that is before us. Servers are awakening and taking up their positions as agents of the new spirit. 
This book helps recall our soul's purpose in incarnation and gives revelatory insights into the pattern of the long prophesied and now unfolding Aquarian passion play on Earth. End quote. Woo! That was my monologue. That was my audition. Thank you. I joined that cult. <laughs> I mean, you can buy the book on Amazon. Both of his books are on there. Really? The next no. one's called The New Call. And this was actually uh-huh. written before Servers of the Divine. Okay. Um, same anonymous author. Uh, it contains similar ideas, and both of them were, like, basically some a weird, like, call of action. So both of them were met with, like, half-and-half half reviews. Some, some, some people were like, this is ridiculous, it's too complex. Some people were like, this is fear-mongering, this is just something to scare people. Um... But it also had, like, an overwhelmingly positive response as well. Some people loved it as, like, for what it was. But mm-hmm. some people really loved it and believed everything it said. Right. So they were talking about how they found themselves and they gained, like, a new understanding of the world. And I guess you can see this coming. These books inspired a new age-type group to form called... The Truth Fellowship. Now, members of the group are awakened and they're ready to take leadership before the supposed end of the world judgment day. And they worshipped these writings and they were totally devoted to the author. The author, Gary Felton, a.k.a. Simon Cadwell. He is the author and the leader of The Truth Fellowship. So he's this deeply spiritual, introspective guy. He's Spent a lot of time in communes. He's really highly educated in New Age philosophy. And he's, like, obsessed with Doomsday and the end of the world. So he met his girlfriend, Chantel Mc, 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 McDougal. Is that how you say McDougal? that? McDougal? Chantel McDougal in 1997 at a spiritual retreat in Melbourne, Australia. So she was 17 at the time, and he was 32. Just, just what? putting that out there. That's not okay. So he told her that they were brought together for the good of the universe. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, <coughs> terrible line. <coughs> terrible, I know, it's like terrible. a weird like pickup line. <coughs> Wouldn't work if you weren't a cult leader. <coughs> it's like Tinder. <laughs> That's pretty bad, yeah. Um, is that why I never did well at Tinder? I didn't never get so enough Tinder is line. a very weird place. <laughs> it is, yeah. I got Moving out. on. I got out. Um, and at this time, when they met, he was writing um, the servers of the divine book. So Simon and his partner at the time, Deborah, they went up to Chantel and they were like, yo. I mean, they didn't say that, but. Um, <laughs> they asked, yo, Chantel. Yo, Chantel. Um, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> what? 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 That's, that's how, like, 80s rappers talk. I was trying to oh, do an 80s rapper. Oh, Like a white guy who's trying to sound black. Yeah. Could you tell? Did yeah. you get all of that nuance from no. my little thing? Not no? at all. Oh, okay. Not okay. at all. Well, I'm glad I over-explained it. Lots then. of nuance. <laughs> always, I think that's what we're most known for. <laughs> Lots of nuance. Okay, moving on. Okay. So, Simon and his partner at the time, Deborah, they asked Chantel to move in with them and their young son, She was like, yes, of course. I'll, like, take care of your son and be, like, the baby. I don't know. Like, she was, like, their caretaker. So the 
the Truth Fellowship had a following of about 40 people all over the world um, because they gathered on an online forum that was created by Simon called The Forecourt. Um, Simon was frequently on the forum and he went under the name Psy. So he tells his followers that they're on this path to restore the universe and only those worthy will move on to the next dimension and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so Chantel, she's all in. She fully embraces teachings. She worshiped, she totally worshiped him. Um, so throughout the next few years, Simon, Chantel, Deborah, and their son did a lot of moving. So they went from Perth, Australia to Glastonbury in Southern England. Um, there in Southern England, England, they had like a large spiritual new age community that was settled there. Um, and they talked about how like spiritual lines connected there or some shit. This is where the spiritual lines connect or I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just make it up as you go. I mean, on, you know, kind of. Isn't that what cult leaders do? I was, it just really made me think about L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, God. <laughs> like, once people got to a certain level, like OT whatever, they just made up more OTs so they could, like, keep people buying the fucking books. It's like, oh my, God. oh, my God. It's like, but it's always the same racket. You're right. It's, it's like. That's why cults are so interesting. They have, it's like. They have these common attributes that, like, it's almost it always there. It ticks all the boxes. Ticks all the boxes. Okay, tell so, me about it. while in Glastonbury, a follower named Justine confessed that she was in love with Simon. So Simon was like, hey, you should come to move to Glastonbury. And she was like, sure. Of course, it wasn't that simple, but he got his manipulative little hands on her and was like, Come, come live with me. So she moves in with him. So we got a full house. We got Chantel, we got Deborah and her son, and then we have Simon, and now we have Justine. So at that point, he starts asking his other followers to make the move as well, saying something about wanting to meet on the physical plane and how it's time. So one follower. Hey, so hey actually, guys, let's meet IRL. IRL. So not everybody like made the move, but people did visit. Mm -hmm. um one follower Pilgrimage. actually right one follower actually went and found simon to be like really weird he was really extreme his whole divine plan was way too much and after that he stopped supporting the fellowship and he like wrote online all mm. about it check please right right um he accused simon of using him to seduce other women as well and he talked about deborah and how she's straight up being manipulated by him and that he like hopes that she gets better and learns to like take her own path and stuff like that. It was very blatant to him. He was like, yo, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And more followers came forward as well saying similar things. Um, another follower also brought to light the real reason why Simon fled overseas to England. It was because his work, his, his books were actually heavily plagiarized and from other spiritual works and that he didn't awaken on his own. Um, the publishing company wanted their investment back. So they were like, uh, let's go to England. <laughs> so they got the money to move to England after conning one of his followers to give out her life savings. 
So here you see I'm ticking all Typical the boxes. cult behavior. So at this point, some followers left, others stayed. He was super manipulative. He told his followers that this is all totally false and uh, that I'm actually getting stronger and that I actually don't need to sleep anymore because I'm such a great... Just so much stuff. So much <laughs> And I'm wearing these sunglasses so I won't burn you with my laser eyes. Oh, God. Because <laughs> I'm Jim oh Jones and I'm high as fuck all the time. <laughs> Shit was nuts. Cult, why are cult leaders always the same goddamn person? <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. And How why are they like 99% men? It's like different cultures that can happen anywhere in the world. It's the same, right. same Whether thing. Whether you're talking about like... Japan or um, America or Europe or like, that's yeah, crazy. It's nuts. So, yeah, so he was like, you know, these claims are totally false and I'm getting stronger. Um, eventually, they went back to Australia uh, with the whole clan, Deborah, Chantel, Justine, and the son. So at this point, all of the women are having sexual relations with Simon. So Justine, Deborah, and Chantel. So it was kind of a a weird, interesting type of little family. Very open relationships, um, and which you know, no judgment. Um, but whatever this, works for you. Well, I mean, they. But this seemed, clearly did not was not healthy. Well, Chantel eventually got pregnant, and Deborah was like, "Fuck this," and she left, and she took her son with her. Uh huh. So like, go Deborah. Um. Justine stayed through Chantel's pregnancy, but she also eventually, like, kind of woke up, reevaluated her life, and left. Mm -hmm. So now it's Simon, Chantel, and their newborn baby that they named Leela. So they soon meet a 40-year-old man named Tony Popich. Popich? I think it's Popich. Um, so he's, like, this really chill guy he's very he has a he's a gentle soul described as having a gentle soul he was um a nomad he was very nomadic he moved from place to place peripatetic right he was very he was also very easily drawn to simon because um they had conflicting personalities and that's why they like he simon was able to you know kind of turn him like that so he became a devoted member of the fellowship, and he soon moved in with Chantel, Simon, and Leela. So they moved two more times, and then they settled in, they finally settled in Nanup in 2003. So Nanup is um, a small town, three hours south of Perth. Uh, local population, population at the time of around 500 people, but currently it's around 900. So... Nanup is surrounded by dense forests, like that mm -hmm. goes on for miles, and you're told to never deviate from the trails, or you could easily get lost. There's so many ways to die in Australia. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, so many. Spiders, dinner plates, same size. <laughs> <laughs> um, Deadliest snakes oh my in the world. No, thank you. <clears throat> so Simon was loved it because it was so secluded and it was quiet, and they won't you know, be easily found. Tony lived in a caravan in the back of the property. In the backyard, Simon began growing the Benisteriopsis copy vine, or 
one of the main ingredients of the ayahuasca brew. Oh, okay. So for those of you who do not, who are not familiar with ayahuasca, ayahuasca is a potent hallucinogenic brew that is used as um, uh, like spiritual medicine um, among the indigenous indigenous people in the Amazon basin in uh, Brazil. Um, It's also... uh, uh, associated with uh, shamanism and shamanism is a practice where another state of consciousness is reached in order to communicate with the spiritual world. So that was the goal of the ayahuasca tea cleanse. And you have an, the shaman is the intercessor, right? Right. The the go between the, the guide, you know, the, uh, yeah. Lots of meditating. Right, right. And, and presumably this guy, whatever, what was his name again? Steve something or other? Simon? Simon. I forgot his name. Simon. Simon. Yeah. Simon Simon. Forgot good, his good. last name. Um, Cadwell. Cool. Um, he was that for them, that he was going to be their, like, guide to the next world, right? Right, he yeah. He was, like, their shaman, right? Yeah. Cool. Um, it was, like, a sacrament to receive the ayahuasca brew. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen people on it. It is a pretty painful and stressful experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, apparently you feel so amazing that like going through those hours, it like, pe- it like kicks in about a half hour in and then it peaks at two hours and it could go on for um, as long as eight hours. Yeah. Um, apparently you feel so good at the end that it's like worth getting through, you know, vomit and diarrhea and all of these crazy things, vivid hallucinations, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, He thought that it would prepare him and his family for the judgment day. So here they are. They're living in Nanup. Simon kind of kept to himself. He was always online managing his forum. Um, But Chantel and Tony, they were, like, really active and, like, well-liked within the community. But, you know, where Chantel was, people were like, oh, like, Simon's not far So he was really protective of her. He would, like, loiter around her workplace and, like, he didn't let her talk to other men and crazy shit. Um, So at this point, it's 2007, and Leela is six years old. Simon's neighbors describe him as, like, a narcissistic personality and who he always demanded attention. Um, So eventually Simon started to suffer from paranoia he believed that he and Chantel and Leela were subject to harmful electromagnetic waves being directed toward their home. So a neighbor, Bruce Blackburn, said, quote, Simon was paranoid about electromagnetic fields. He was always ranting and raving about them up to the point where he was breaking out in hives and his face looked as if it was about to burst. It was so red. This went on for four months, end quote. So Bruce Blackburn is his neighbor, but he also works for the electric company, Western power. And one day he had to go install, um, like a power pole and a transformer. And Simon went nuts. He went crazy. He thought that this was like the source of the electromagnetic waves. And Bruce didn't even finish the job because Simon was like so stressed out about it. Which it should be said that those kind of electromagnetic waves, essentially it's been proven that they're not harmful to human health. 
like there's this idea and like there's this guy who had a long running court case who lives in like Arizona or something who believes this too. Wow. Of course, it's, it's a prominent part of um, the plot of uh, Better Call Saul. Um, oh. I mean, it's like an idea that's out there, but yeah. like it's just for like scientific reasons, it like is essentially not possible that it could harm human health. So anyway, just to mention. Um, so he was like, I got to protect my family. So protect mm-hmm. him and his family from these electromagnetic waves. He buys magnets and he buries them in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Blackburn added, quote, the second to last time I saw him, he was covered in hives. He said they were killing him and his daughter, and he had gone to the doctor to get some sort of medication. He and Tony were off the planet, end quote. They're Australian. Off the planet, meaning crazy, I think. Okay. Um, if you're Australian, and I know there are some people in Australia who listen to this, and you know, uh, email us. They were off the planet. If you would. Um, that was not, didn't sound. I know, I know. Aust- Australian dialect is difficult, and there's yeah. so many. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anyway, so Chantel's parents, Jim and Catherine McDougal, lived over a thousand miles away from their daughter, and they had little to no idea of how she was being manipulated by Simon Cadwell. Um, so as far as they knew... Chantel and Simon were just like these free thinkers who had a different type of belief system. It was a little weird, but in the end, they weren't harming anybody. Her mother, Catherine, visited Chantel and said that she felt something was strange, though she couldn't place her finger on it at the time. When they they visited, um, Simon would lock himself in his room and he spent the, the duration of their visit on his computer. He didn't allow them to take pictures either, so like the dad had to like sneak photos like on his phone of his granddaughter and stuff like that um but like it was all weird but they never witnessed simon like threaten to harm Chantel or anything mm-hmm. and they're like you know she's a grown woman they like had they re- had to trust her right there were like bad vibes but no it didn't proof. seem like abusive per se it didn't right. seem it like, was weird but it wasn't like yeah yeah so here's a quote from Catherine. quote i spent 10 days there but i had a terrible feeling that something weird or strange was going on while I was there, they got a package in the mail while I was out of the house. They indicated to each other it was a passport for Leela. They asked me to look after Leela one evening so they could get an early night, but instead they had visitors, which they didn't usually have. Chantel wouldn't say who they were. Something was strange, and when I drove back to Perth after the stay, I started to feel sick, end quote. She later added, quote, he was very controlling of Leela. He didn't really want me to be involved with her and wanted to cut me out, end quote. So, July 13th, 2007, Simon sells his car for $1,500 and they sell Chantel's car for another $4,000. They drove away in a different unknown vehicle and this was the last time they were seen. So, July 14th, Chantel, the next day, Chantel calls her parents and she tells them that she's going on an extended holiday with Leela, Simon, and Tony. So um, she, she's, she says that they were going to a local commune in Brazil on the outskirts of the Amazon. Um, explained uh, that Simon had already left and the rest of them were leaving soon. So they called their real estate agent to notify him of their departure. They like, um, 
And the real estate agent said that they told him that he could take or sell all of their furniture, but he was like, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> so Tony allegedly also had $25,000 that his father gave to him just days before he disappeared. Um, but his father was led to believe that he needed it for, like, legal obligations or something like that. But they, like, never really got the money. They never... It was never traced. Hmm. So weeks go by and no one had heard from the family, which was weird. Uh, Chantel's parents never even got confirmation that she would like arrived in Brazil and was safe. So Chantel's father, Jim, he's worried. He makes some calls. Um, he found that they never found any record of them arriving in the country he called the he called the landlord and the landlord went to go check on the family five days after they went missing. And no one but no one told the landlord that they were leaving in the first place. Um, he found a note, quote, we have left suddenly due to lack of sleep created by the electromagnetic fields. We have moved overseas to Brazil and could not take all of our furniture with us. All of our personal things are gone, but whatever we have left are yours to do as you wish. Sorry to leave so quickly. All of the animals have been taken care of, and the keys to the house are on the kitchen bench. The caravan has also been cleared of any personal items. You are welcome to the caravan and all furnishings. From Chantel, Simon, Tony, and Leela. Another note was found in Tony's caravan that simply said, Gaunt, Brazil. There's some fi fishy, fishy so things going on. weird. Fishy things. Yeah. So, Chantel's parents report her, Simon, and Leela missing. The home was still full of furniture. They left behind their computer and their other electronics. There was still food in the pantry. They left wallets and credit cards. Um, clothing and other personal items were gone, but it didn't look like they had packed up and moved overseas, not at all. So parents even contacted the Australian embassy in Brazil and found that there was no documentation of them leaving the country at all or even arriving to Brazil. Which, I mean, they would have had to have gotten a visa. Right. Which the Australian government would have had to know about. Exactly. So, essentially, they either smuggled themselves into Brazil or somewhere else, or they never left Australia. Yeah. So, police searched the house and the property, but nothing was found. Um, the bank accounts have not been touched. Uh, the $4,000 for the car was still in Chantel's account. Um, by November 2007, uh, Tony Popich had been reported missing by his father and brother. He was a nomad and already difficult to trace, mm -hmm. um, but it was unlike him to, like, not keep in touch. Like, he okay. would still keep in touch. Um, and they hadn't uh, heard from him at all. Mm -hmm. So police go to Simon's online, online activity, and the blog hadn't been used at all since their disappearance. So they find a post two weeks before their disappearance from Simon saying, quote, I'm exhausted and the only option is to leave this world, end quote. A follower named Sharon comes forward. She reaches out to Simon. She sees this and he reveals that he had been trying to get the drug Nembital, a drug widely used in euthanasia and suicide. It shuts down your central nervous system. Um, and that he was planning on giving it to his family, then to himself. Sharon discouraged Simon. She was like, don't, don't do this. And the thing that got him was like, this would be murder. You'd be murdering your daughter. Um, and Simon was like, Sharon, you're right. Uh, 
and he seemed to change his mind. And he said, maybe we'll just wander off and live in isolation, hatching the plan to go to Brazil. However, I mean, we'll never really know. Maybe it was the big Brazil in the sky. That's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so investigators found phone records. They found a bus ticket to a town around 62 miles from Nanup. The ticket, which was never used, was purchased by uh, Jay Roberts. Um, investigators traced Tony's phone and found a number of things. So they traced his phone along a train line that reached Perth. A man checked into what was called the Underground Backpacker Hotel under the name Tony Popich and used a driver's license like as a photo ID. Um, they uh, saw a call to Domino's and the pizza delivery man identified Tony as the one he delivered to. However... Keep in mind, eyewitness testimony is crap, number one. Number two, Tony and Simon actually looked somewhat similar to each other. Hmm. So there's doubt there. So, also, Simon had a history of identity theft, um, and it's possible that he was posing as Tony. So in the years that followed, it emerged that Simon Codwell was, in fact, a man named Gary Felton, an illegal immigrant who had stolen his pseudonym from a former associate in Britain. So this guy's just what? a fake. Yeah. So that whole time, his wife, the other women, all of the internet friends, right. everyone who visited him, through that whole time, he wasn't even Simon whatever. He was this other guy. That's crazy. Yeah. The next day, Tony purchased an additional ticket, which was headed for a town called Calgary. Tony had bought a return ticket, but investigators are unsure if he ever traveled back to Perth. So this ticket was purchased under the same name, Jay Roberts. The name Jay Roberts has never surfaced since then, and records show that the cell phone hasn't been used since then either. It's been more than 10 years, and the four have still not been found. Wow. That's a good one. Crazy story, right? That's probably the most involved missing persons case that I've ever heard about. Right. That and Alan Chapelo, who was buried under, you know, mounds of papers in his crazy oh, house. Right. Remember in England? Yeah, that's yep. right, that's right. But no, that was a really good one. Thank you, thank you. Good shit, good yes. shit. So, shout out to the Case File podcast. Great podcast. Mm-hmm. Um... Also got stuff from a Huffington Post article by Laura Pierce. I got a lot of it from a Reddit. It was this was all sparked by a Reddit post by user right. Bubba Joe Jones. Perth Now news article by Trevor Pattenberg is another source that I had. Good job. Thank you. Yay, go team! Yeah, look at us making some episodes, putting them out. And we got this done before Wednesday, so... Oh, yeah. Pretty good, pretty good. Yes. And uh, I think that's uh, going to be it. Uh, Sorry thank, for no editing. Yeah, th and thank you guys thank for, you listening, for listening. E even when we don't edit and we, you know, say crazy stuff and it's yeah. cool. It's cool. It's cool. It's, it's cool, cool, cool. It's cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool. No, no doubt. doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. No doubt. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we really appreciate you guys. Yeah. And uh, you know, hit us up on all of the social medias. Please, we we do uh, try to post regularly on the Instagram, on, on you know, the Instagram, on the Insta. Uh, you can tweeter me, oh, Mario Text Thirty. <laughs> Twitter at the Twitter. 
Tweeter on the Twitter. Um, Twitter on the Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, all that good stuff. Comments, rating. Yes, that helps a lot. Uh, And finally, Patreon. Yeah, if you feel like being a fucking superstar like Michelle and Emma. Yes, yes, yes. You can go to our Patreon, give us a buck. This Friday we will be releasing our new, and I know... Honestly, we are. I we're going to do it, I right? I said that last week. I know, but it's going. Guys, it's actually we, going to happen. We really want to get you extra content. We want to keep talking. We want you to hang out with us in a more informal setting. We just have to get it done. We'll get it done. We will get it done. We will get it done. And that, of course, will be for all of our Patreon subscribers. Yes. Of any of any amount. Um, so anyway, uh, and I've been posting some more pictures and stuff on our Patreon too. So if you visit it. Uh, bit.ly slash uh, join team mystery is how you get there. So anyway, uh, I think that's probably going to be it for this week, right? Yep. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Bye. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code super 24.